Revelation chapter 11. We're going to look at the last few verses of chapter 11. As we look at Revelation chapter 11 last week, we looked at these two witnesses, and the week prior to that, we looked at this third temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. It's not there now, but it's in the works, and uh, the Jews in Jerusalem already have the, the accoutrements, all of the clothing, the vestures, all these things are ready to go. They are literally sitting in a receptacle, and you can actually visit. It's called the Temple Mount Institute, or the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. We were there and they've got everything ready to go, literally. And they're even working on the red heifer. They've got people in, in the United States, I believe, in Pennsylvania somewhere, I think. I may be wrong on that, but they've identified a red heifer, and they're examining him, and, or her, actually. Heifer is a girl, right? So, um, so they're, uh, they're ready to go. They're ready to go. All that remains is some politician to give them the okay to build that temple. And it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, unless the church is removed, and then the Bible tells us, as we're reading, that the Antichrist, who will just be a politician, he, he won't be known as the Antichrist. See, we've got to get that out of our head. I oftentimes have to get it out of my head, because I, I, I use this term for a human being that is going to be empowered by Satan at some point in his career, <clears throat> and he's going to do amazing things. He's going to be the politician of politicians. He's going to be what the world has wanted all this time. He's going to be... And, but he's just a man, and, and he's probably a very uh, good-looking man. He's probably well-spoken, well-educated, well-versed in the different religions, and able to smooth talk, sort of like Mercury. He can just float wherever he needs to go, and he, even more so than our current politicians. And he will allow the Jews to build their temple. And we looked at that, and then we looked at these two witnesses that are going to be ministering during this first half of the tribulation period, this first three and a half years. They're going to be ministering until this man, who we call the Antichrist, puts them to death and their bodies lie in Jerusalem in the streets for three and a half days. And then afterward, they are risen from the dead. They are literally resurrected and they are caught up into the clouds just as we will be caught up into the clouds at any time now. Hopefully before the end of the service. And so we looked at chapter 11, and uh, you'll notice at the very, and the 14th verse of chapter 11, it says the second woe is past, and the third woe is coming quickly. If you recall, I had this graphic that looks something similar to this, and uh, you'll notice here in the, um, in this part, Over here in the lower right-hand corner where we, we talked about these three woes. We've already looked at the first two. The first woe was in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. The second woe is recorded for us in chapter 9 again, beginning in verse 13, going all the way until chapter 11, verse 14. And it tells us right there, the second woe is past, and the third woe is coming quickly. So what we have here this morning as we look um, we are beginning that area, that time period of the third woe, which also corresponds to the very last trumpet uh, judgment that God is going to have an angel blow to signify uh, a, a bowl of bowls of wrath to come out from uh, from that trumpet. And the way that that works is that there were remember there were seven seals. At the seventh seal, when that was blown, another. A uh, group of seven judgments came from that, the seven trumpet judgments. And now we're at that seventh trumpet judgment, also called the third woe. And it's going to, once it is sounded, it's going to unleash vials, seven vials or seven bowls of wrath of God upon the earth. And that is the very last part. And originally I thought that that third woe, uh, certainly it begins in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, but there's really no terminus to it. And you can look through the, the book of Revelation and you won't find where it says, and the third woe is past. It, it, it's not there. You won't find it. And after praying and, and, and reading and studying, I came to the conclusion that really what this is, is 
It begins here in 11 verse 15, and it goes all the way, this woe, this third woe, this worst part of human history on the earth, goes all the way until Revelation chapter 20, until the end of that, because that not only includes the, the, it includes the second coming of Jesus, but it also includes the judgments and the great white throne judgment. All of those judgments are wrapped up in this last final trumpet judgment. Does that make sense? So as the seventh trumpet is blown really from this in in germ form is everything that proceeds afterward until the new heavens and the new earth are created and the new Jerusalem that it talks about in Revelation chapter 21. Because it's a, it's a, it's a time of judgment. And even Jesus coming to the earth, do you understand, is a judgment. When he comes back to earth, he's not coming as the meek and mild baby Jesus in the, in, the, in, the, in the manger. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah with judgment to judge a world that has rejected him, that has rejected and spurned his offer of salvation and forgiveness. It's not going to be a good day. But the good news is none of us will see that. We'll be coming back with him because at any moment the church can be raptured, taken up, And we'll look at that later on. We will look at that later on. Now, if you look over in chapter 12, we see that there is a, and we'll get to this next week, where it's sort of like an allegory in a sense. It's it's using a lot of symbolic terms that we find in the Old Testament, and we'll uncover that when we get to, when we get there next week. But it does speak of, of Satan um, and his involvement in the world and his relationship and his antagonism, his persecution of Israel. We'll look at that next week. But it also says in, um, in verse 12 there, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And then he says, Woe to the inhabitants of the, wor- the earth and and the, and, the, uh, and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And that's certainly a woe, isn't it? I think that that's the beginning of, of what we're going to see. As soon as this trumpet sounds, these things are going to start to take place. And it's going to be a time unprecedented in human history. It's going to be really bad. And that's, why, that's what compels us to share the gospel. That's what compels us to tell, tell people that we know and love about Jesus. They need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear about his, his, his forgiveness. They need to hear about his, uh, his redemption. They need to be aware of their own sin nature. Is there anyone here without a sin nature? Every one of us was born with a sin nature. You can read it in Romans chapter 5. Paul said that from the, when Adam and Eve sinned, that nature, when the scales fell from their eyes, that rebellion that forfeiture, that nature was passed down to everyone afterwards. And we are included in that. And that's why we needed to be redeemed. That's why we needed a Savior. Let's read Revelation 11. We're going to read 15 through 19. And then we'll get into it. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded. Notice, the seventh angel Sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and they worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that they should reward, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and you should destroy, or and should destroy, those who destroy the earth. And then it ends in verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail, and great hail. Let's look back at verse 15 now. It says, when the seventh angel sounded, the seventh angel, this is the sounding of the seventh trumpet. That's why we call it the seventh trumpet judgment. It's the most significant of all of the trumpet judgments so far, because as we said before, within it, it has the unfolding of the seven last judgments of God, also called the bowls or the or the uh, or the vile judgments. And we know this to be true because we see it in the 
We know that this is the seventh uh, judgment, trumpet judgment. In Revelation 15, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, meaning the seven last vials or bowls of judgment, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So once the seventh trumpet sounds, then unleashes this other seven judgments called vials or bowls of wrath. And the seventh trumpet not only contains, like we said before, like I said before, not only the judgments, but also the entire plan of God. And we will look at that. Before we go any further, though, we need to clear up a few things, because as we get into this, this is one of those verses that those who hold to a mid-tribulation rapture, this is one that they really hang on to. And it's really not a a, a very good um, uh, viewpoint, and we will look at some of that today. But we first have to understand that there are three different views of the rapture. Three different views. And we can see, excuse me, this. Uh, there are three different views. We have the pre-trib rapture, which is what we believe in, which is what the Bible, I believe, makes very clearly. And then there's also a what they call a mid-tribulation rapture, uh, which I don't hold to and I don't believe to, and many people don't. And certainly the post-trib is, is even more um, <laughs> outlandish in its... Uh, uh, thoughts, but we have to look at these, and and basically what this is is those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture believe that the church will be raptured, and you can see here that the tribulation period is a total of seven years right here, right, and there is a midpoint where the antichrist is going to have the Jews cease their offerings and is going to put an image of himself in a new rebuilt temple in in Jerusalem, but this um, many believe. Uh, you know, there, again, these three views are a person who believes in a pre-trib rapture are those who believe that the church will be taken before this great tribulation begins. And there are many scriptures that corroborate that very easily. We'll look at a few of those today. But then there are those who hold to a mid-tribulation perspective, and, and they believe that the church is going to go through a time of tribulation, in the great tribulation, that is, and because they need to be cleansed, they need to be uh, proven and then they will be taken up at the midpoint, at the point where we're talking about today. And there are also those who believe that at the end of the Great Tribulation is when the church is raptured. And the, the first one, the pre-trib, is what we believe in. The, first, uh, the pre-trib rapture is what we've been taught for years. Uh, we've looked at all the scriptures. It is very obvious to me. Uh, that this is the the correct view, because the Bible clearly teaches it. The other two are very spurious, and you have to um, do a lot of uh, gymnastics with the scriptures to make those things fit. So, And we also know this about God. He doesn't need to put his church through the tribulation period. Why? Because 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, this is a great verse. If you don't know it, commit it to memory. It says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. If you need to go through the great tribulation to be purged of your sins, then what he did on the cross was ineffectual, right? Does that make sense? If you have to go through some rite, if you have to go through some process as a result of Jesus dying on the cross for your sin once and for all, if you have to go through anything else, then what he did was not enough. But what did he say on the cross? It is finished. It's finished. The price has been paid in full to tell us day I it is done. Isn't that what he said? So why, should, why does the church need to go through the tribulation to be purified when the blood of Christ purifies us? That's what the Bible says over and over again. So therefore, we have every reason to believe that the only one that makes sense is the pre-trib view, and that's what we teach. It's what we've been teaching. It's what Pastor Jeff has been teaching. It's what Pastor Chuck Smith has been teaching. It's what, not only them, but going all the way back from the very beginning in the church age, they've been teaching this. So, those who believe in this this seventh trumpet, and the reason they call it that is because it's called the seventh trumpet. It's the last trumpet spoken of in, in the book of Revelation, but it's not really the last trumpet. We'll look at that in just a moment. So is this the last trumpet? The answer is, as far as God's wrath is concerned, yes. It is, in a sense. 
And yes, it's the last time a trumpet is blown in the book of Revelation. That is true, but it is not the rapture of the church. Those who hold, because you think about it, where we're at in the book of Revelation right now, there's been judgment and death over, uh, prior to this, over a 58%, that's a large percentage, at least 58% of people on the earth, by the time we get to this, have died on the earth from God's judgment. I would say that's a pretty severe judgment, wouldn't you? That's more than half. That eliminates more than half of you in this room if we were uh, unbelievers. Do you understand how stark that is? Worldwide. And so I don't believe for a minute that the church is removed here at the, in the midpoint. They had to be removed before. The Antichrist has to build this temple for three and a half years. It's got to be there. And it goes along with Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where he speaks of a week of years, seven years. In the midpoint of that, the Antichrist is going to make himself known. That whole, that whole seven-year period is a tribulation period. But there are three trumpets of significance in the end-time scenario, and we've already looked at one. The first one is at the rapture of the church, signifying the end of the church age. At any moment, hopefully today, <laughs> the Lord could sound the trump of God. Remember that, the trump of God should sound, and then the dead in Christ will rise, then we which are alive and remain will be caught up. There is a trumpet for that. It's a trump for the church. It's the last trump because there is no other trump. It was the very last one. And there's no need for any other. There was no other as far as we know. It's the last trump of the church. The trump, the church is taken up. But there's also another trumpet of significance, and we're reading about it right now in Revelation 11, verse 15. It's the seventh trumpet sounded by seven different angels. Does that make sense? Remember when I said the trump of God, and now we have, read the first verse in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. What did he sound? He sounded with a trumpet. There's a trump of God, and then there's an angel sounding with the trumpet. Do you see there's a difference between the two? God is blowing one, an angel is blowing another. And there's also a third trumpet significance, and it's not in the book of Revelation, but it's very well within the timeline of everything we're talking about in the end time scenario. And it's a trumpet blast at Jesus' second coming to gather the Jewish believers. And so let's look at this first trumpet really quickly. This is a review for some of you, but I would encourage you to memorize these scripture references and even the passages themselves. This first trumpet signifies the end of the church age, which is called the rapture. And we read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Let me read it to you as by way of reminder. Paul said to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, notice, underline this, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. This was not Paul's opinion. This was not something he picked up along the road somewhere. He says the Lord revealed it to him. This is, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You've got all authority of heaven on your, on your shoulders when you share this. Here it is. We say to you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have already died in Christ. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of an angel? No, the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. We'll be harpazoed in the Greek. We'll be raptus in the Latin. That's where we get our word rapture. We will be taken up, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Where? In the air. And, for, and, and, and forever. And thus we shall always be with the Lord and therefore comfort one another with these words. That's pretty comforting. That means before that this whole thing comes to pass, before the Antichrist is even revealed, the church, and you can read about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We have to be removed. We are the thing that's restraining lawlessness. 
The very spirit of God in you causes you to act a certain way. The very fact that you're a Christian colors this world. You have an impact. Whether you think you're a great witness or not, the fact that you are here, you are slowing this tide that is just wanting to, it's at the break walls. Can you feel it? It's like all this ungodliness is just, it's like, a, it's like the Hoover Dam. And once that Hoover Dam is taken down, once the church is removed, oh my, it's going to be the worst thing that anybody's ever seen. But they'll get what they want. A world without God. Let's govern ourselves. Has that worked out so far? I don't think it has. I don't know, maybe you live on an alternate reality. Maybe, there, maybe, it, maybe it does work out, but I, I don't think it does. It never has. Wrong king, wrong kingdom. <laughs> Notice that when Christ comes for the church in the passage that we just read, it's heralded by the trump of God, not one of the seven angels. This is an important distinction to make. And some have tried to place the rapture at this verse because it is the last trumpet recorded in the book of Revelation and because of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And let me read it to you. Beginning in verse 50, Paul said to them, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Notice this. We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Here it is. In, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we which are alive, and we, and we shall be changed. Okay, this last trumpet is the trump of God. It's very different from the seven trumpets that we're looking at today, or the seventh trumpet. Okay? John Walvoord, the, uh, he's a really wonderful brother, uh, pastor, teacher, writer, author. He says, the trumpet signaled the appearance of God, and we see that even in Exodus, back when they met on Mount Sinai, that there was a long blast of a trumpet. So this blast is for the church because this appearance of, um, shall never end. It's never going to end. And he also goes on and says, The trumpets in Revelation pertain to judgments during the, during the tribulation, whereas the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15.52 is related to the church. And I believe that. It makes sense to me. So we look at these seven trumpets. We're looking at the seventh one now. And what does it say? In Revelation 8, verse 1 and 2, Then he opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels, here they are, right? Seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Seven angels, seven trumpets. Makes sense, doesn't it? And when he opened... Sorry, and then in Revelation 8, verse 6, it says, So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And here it is, the seventh trumpet is sounding. Now there's a very difference, a big difference, between that trumpet that we read about in Corinthians and Thessalonians versus the trumpet that we're hearing now. And here is a chart that I thought was really helpful if we look at this, we look at the trumpet that is in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's, it's specific uh, concerning the church. And the result of this trumpet is the catching up of the church with the Lord. And it's, uh, it's concerning God's grace, and the timing of it signals the close of the life of the church on earth. It is the last trumpet of the church age. And now when we look at these trumpets, this last trumpet in Revelation has a whole different character about it. When the trumpet's blown, the wicked world is being judged. The result of it is judgment of a godless world, and the character of it is the trumpet of God's judgment. It all speaks of judgment. These are not the same trumpet. The trumpet of Revelation 11.15 is not the same trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 or in 1 Thessalonians. Different trumpet, different, whole different scenario. If you look at them both, very different outcomes, very different. And again, I leave you this verse. For God did not appoint us to wrath. He did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. But guess what? There's actually another trumpet that's not recorded for us in the book of Revelation. It's actually recorded for us in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, in uh, the 24th chapter, where Jesus talks about this end-time scenario, he says this. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Now, remember, he's talking about the tribulation 
that is finished. Okay, we're not finished with the tribulation and revelation, but at the end of it, Jesus tells his disciples, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man shall appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Does that sound like the second coming of Christ? It does. It is. His physical coming to the earth, not the rapture. The rapture occurs at any moment. This is something, and we will be with him. But when the second coming comes, that's him coming back to the earth for a thousand years in his millennial reign. He touches down on the Mount of Olives. You can read Zechariah 14, talks all about that wonderful passage. But notice in verse 31, and he will send his angels. Notice, here's another third trumpet after Jesus Christ returns. There's another trumpet. Look at this. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And what is the purpose of this trumpet? To get attention? To gather the troops, so to speak. And what is it? And he will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. The Jews, during that tribulation period, will all be gathered together. The faithful remnant. He will gather them together. And it's a trumpet. So we got three different trumpets. They all have three different purposes. We have to see them as that. And why is that a big deal anyway? Well, if you believe in a mid-tribulation, uh, mid, uh, mid-tribulation rapture, then there's no eminence, is there? The Bible speaks that it could happen any time in the twinkling of an eye. But if you believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, you know that there has to be three and a half or, or three and a half years of the temple being built and this whole all this stuff and the Antichrist to come into power. He's actually in power in the beginning, but he shows himself. He's actually indwelt by Satan himself in the midpoint of this tribulation after some kind of assassination attempt on his life. The very devil himself will inhabit this man. And if you believe that the church is raptured at that point, you know exactly what's happening beforehand. And the Bible says that it doesn't make sense. You have to allegorize, you have to spiritualize so many passages of Scripture to come to this conclusion. It's preposterous. So there is no midpoint tribulation or midpoint rapture. It is preached. We could spend a whole two or three Sundays on that alone, but we don't have time for that. But I will say this. There are three different trumpets. This trumpet has nothing to do with the tribulation and if, if you also believe a mid-tribulation rapture, that means that you've got to go through the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, most of them. And then we look at the verse where it says, for God has not appointed us to wrath because he already took the wrath upon himself on the cross. That either happened or it didn't. Do I need to be purged before, I, before God can receive me? Or am I already perfected in Christ, as it says in Colossians? Are you perfected in Christ right now? You are. You may not feel like it, but there's nothing more that you can do. It's just God's sanctification now. You're just growing in grace every single day. You're growing to know him. But believe me, it doesn't matter where you're at right now. If you're a believer in Christ, when the rapture sounds, when the trump of God sounds, you will be taken. Regardless of whether you've spent time in the word yesterday or the day before, guess what? If you're a Christian, you're going up. But the question is, are you a Christian? The Spirit of God himself bears witness within your own heart whether you're a child of God or not. If there's some fear and intrepidation in you about, I'm not sure if I'm saved, then you better come up afterwards. And you don't have to come up here. You can pray with somebody next to you. Receive Christ. Be a part of the church. The church is the only one that's going to be raptured out of this world. And is that like some kind of... um, uh, you know, vice? I'll admit to it, yeah. And it's easy because it's true. Do I want to be around here for the tribulation period? Even half of it. Do you want to be around here? Read the, the seal judgments. Read the, read the trumpet judgments. Do you want to be around for those things where 58% at least of the world population is going to be snuffed out? Do you want to be here for that? I don't think so. I don't want to be here for it. I'll be honest with you. I like apple pie. I like ice cream. I like the good things. 
I don't want to go through those bad things. Anybody who says, oh, if I'm a real Christian, I'll be like a good soldier of Christ, and we'll just go through it together, brother. No, well, you can go through it. I whisper from up above, hey, was it worth it? No, oh, man, I want to come up. No, there, there won't be any arguing. So, verse 15, again, it says, The kingdoms of this world, notice, have become the kingdoms. And this is, the seventh angel sounded, and there was loud voices in heaven. These voices said, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Notice this. Now, it is true that, It says in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's. He made it by right of creation. He made it. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. And guess what? The world and all those who dwell therein, it all belongs to him. It all belongs to him by right of creation. There is no doubt about that. But currently we see this earth under the dominion of Satan. Has anybody noticed difficulties in the earth? Has anybody watched the news lately? I wouldn't encourage you either way. Just turn off your news altogether. Just go outside, get a a pruning shears, and go out to that cable that runs into your house and just go, snip, and be free. Be free. And then run with your hair running, you know, the, the, you know, just like in slow motion even, you know, you're running through the meadow on the beach and the, the wind and the, you know, the, you know, be free from it. Just cut the thing. For heaven's sake, just cut it. But currently, this earth is under the dominion of Satan. And after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God, remember, drove him into the wilderness. And remember what, the, what Satan spoke to Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness. Notice this in Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him, Jesus, up onto an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these, notice who's speaking, Satan is speaking to Jesus, all these, all these kingdoms of the world I will give you. I will give you all if you just fall down and worship me just this once. Just kiss the ring once. Just go ahead and kiss it. Just kiss the ring. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Satan is the God of this age. I don't know if you've noticed. God is allowing him. He is like a, a rabid pit bull on a leash. He does not have autonomy. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. He is on a leash. But he is the God of this age. In 2 Corinthians, what does it say? Paul speaking, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan also is the ruler of this world. What does it say in John chapter 12? Now, Jesus speaking, he said this, Now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, and he was on the cross, remember, he says, I will draw all peoples to myself. Peoples, tongues, tribes, nations. Jesus spoke that. So what kingdom are you living for? What kingdom are you living for? Even though mankind has has strove for centuries, for thousands of years, to have a great rule, a great kingdom, a great government, you know, like us, even in our country, we want the, the, the best of everything. But regardless of what we do and regardless of who we put into office, it will be pale in comparison to when Jesus returns. Because right now, every kingdom of the earth has the wrong king and the wrong kingdom. There's one king coming and he's going to rule over one kingdom one kingdom all of the world empires came to nothing because of sin and corruption but his is an everlasting kingdom egypt was plundered by the nebuchadnezzar and the babylonians and nebuchadnezzar's reign came to an abrupt pause when he boasted in his palace that he had made this great kingdom and didn't give glory to god and god just took away his mental capacity drove him insane This man who didn't give glory to God. This is my place. Look at how beautiful it is. Look what I've done. Look at the buildings. And God says, okay, you're you're done for a season. God in his grace caused this man to go to lose his mind. And you can read about it in Daniel chapter 4. We don't have time to go there. And then his grandson, Belshazzar, in Daniel chapter 5, what does it say? 
His kingdom, the, the kingdom of Babylon, was taken over by the Medes and the Persians while they had a drunken orgy with his cabinet there. And they brought out all the vessels from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had plundered from the temple in 586 B.C. And then finally, he was taken over, or uh, the Medes and the Persians were taken over by Alexander the Great, who conquered the Medes and the Persians, only to die on June 10th or 11th in 323 A.D. at the age of 32, at B.C., excuse me, no, A.D., in Babylon, actually B.C., sorry about that. He died in Babylon from malaria, decrying the fact that there were no other kingdoms that he could conquer. 32 years old, he dies in Babylon, being this great conqueror. But it says in the, the last part of verse 15, but Jesus' kingdom shall reign forever. It's an everlasting kingdom. Here's one that we're going to see in a couple months, a verse that you all know. Isaiah 9, verse 6. I, I've got them here, but let me read them to you. For unto us a child is born. Now pay very careful attention to this. For those of you who may have never heard this before, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful. Notice, this child, this son, will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This baby, this son, is going to be called Almighty God. He's going to be called the Everlasting Father. Are you kidding me? Yes. Prince of Peace. What does it say? Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. This is an everlasting kingdom, not a kingdom that's for here a short period of time. All the kingdoms are, are, are going to go like a vapor. In, da- in Daniel's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue, Nebuchadnezzar had the image of this rock made without hands coming to destroy. Each one of these layers of this image were the different kingdoms. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Alexander the Great, uh, from Greece, and then the Roman Empire, and then the revived Roman Empire, and God is going to come. He is the rock, is he not? He's going to come, and he's going to smash the feet of that thing, and all the foundations, all the kingdoms of the world, up in smoke. They will be destroyed. And what does Daniel say in Daniel 4, verses 2? He said, I thought it good to declare, and this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Nebuchadnezzar said this, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked in me. How great are his signs? And this is after... Um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this episode where he lost his mind. He came to his senses and he became a believer in Christ. Isn't that amazing? This awful man is, talk talk about a 12th hour conversion. (laughs) Remember the man on the cross? Nebuchadnezzar was one of those men. He says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is what? An everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. In Daniel 4.34 it says, and at the end, and again, Nebuchadnezzar speaking, and at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Wasn't he pounding his chest just a few years prior to this, saying, I'm the king of the jungle, look what I've made. Now he comes to his senses, like any good person should. We should all come to our senses. He came to his senses and he says, you know what? His dominion is an an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Darius, even in Daniel chapter 6, verse 25, Darius, who succeeded the Babylonian Empire, he was the king of the Medes and the Persians. What did he say? He wrote a letter after Daniel uh, was taken out of the lion's den. And what was his letter? He says, to all peoples, the king Darius wrote this. He says, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Notice this. I love this. I make a decree in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. Notice his kingdom is the one which shall never be destroyed. It shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. I would say that's pretty good. What do you think? One more. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary, this young girl, probably a teen, young teenager, he visits her, remember, on that fateful morning. 
And he speaks concerning Jesus. And he he said to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. There are others too. You know, those are just a a few. (coughs) So his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And that's why... You know, when we look at the end of uh, the verse there in 15, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the truth. He will reign forever and ever. Now, when we look at the next next three verses, we're going to see God's plan within the, the seventh trumpet in an abbreviated form. It says in verse 16, And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, they fell on their faces. They worshiped God. They were so enamored by this this by who God is and the judgments that are coming, his sovereignty. They were so blown away by his purity, who he was. And now when this last seventh trumpet begins to sound, they fall on their faces. It's the first time that, uh, arguably, that we see them falling on their faces. This is a big deal. This is a monumental, pivotal, pivotal section in the book of Revelation, in the end time scenario. And notice what they said. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is to come, because you have taken or you seized back your great power and reign. God never had, had to uh, seize his power back, but right now we know that the, uh, the God of this age, who is Satan, has dominion over the earth. And it's on loan. It's not going to be there forever. God is going to take back what belongs to him. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. It belongs to him. He's going to take it back and you're coming back with him. Aren't you glad? I'm so looking forward to that day. But notice what he says. All power, all power belongs to God. All power. In Romans 13, let's read it. Let every subject be, uh, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. <clears throat> Excuse me. For there is no authority except from God. Notice that. This is, this is very pertinent for us today. This very day, this scripture ought to be blasted from every place that can hear it. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed or ordained by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Sounds like a good word we need to hear today in in Portland, Oregon. In Minnesota. Downtown Rochester. It's okay to be upset, but when we resort to violence as a result of that, we are in sin doesn't matter the cause. You take away my cornflakes, I'm going to be upset. Now, I don't want to minimize the real issues, okay? Forgive me for that. I don't want to minimize that. But when we, are, when we do evil things, we have what's coming. Does that make sense? You reap what you sow. That's a, that's a universal law. Even as a Christian. Right now, if I go and rob a bank as a Christian, if I go down to M&T and I put on my, my actually, I have this on anyway, right? Okay, hand over all your $100 bills. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to get caught. Eventually. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil works. Do you want to be unafraid of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise of the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be very afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake, for because of this, you also pay taxes." You also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Yes, even even the corrupt ones. You still have to pay taxes. Does that mean that all the authorities that God has in place, they're all perfect? No, we know that that's not true. But does that mean that we just throw out the whole thing? 
You know, God put the authority of, over us to slow down the spread of sin and corruption, and there are, there are those who do need to be reprimanded who are in authority. They need to be held accountable for their actions. It doesn't work for just, the, you know, for everybody else, but not for those who are executing the law. No, they have to be held accountable too. And why not just defund the police and just totally disregard this whole scripture? Are you kidding me? Defund the police? Have people lost their minds? They've gone insane. Anyone who says that we need to defund the police, really, honestly, put them in a, a, gather them up and take them to the insane asylum, give them a large room and put them in straight jackets and let them bounce around for a little while. They need Jesus. This verse validates what they do. It doesn't mean that they're perfect and when they make a mistake, they need to be held accountable. That's the way it needs to be. You don't just defund the police all of a sudden because you got a few bad apples. Hey, listen, there's bad apples even in the church. Any entity has bad apples. We cannot use that excuse. We need to grow up and we need to listen and stop watching all the junk. That's why, take your pruning shears and go outside. Look at that coaxial cable and go, snip, don't worry, it doesn't have any power in it. You're not going to die. I wouldn't recommend doing that to your voltage line and power coming to your house, but the cable line, just go for it. Today, go home and cut it. Just cut it. No, let's just defund the police. What an idiotic thing to say. What an idiotic thing to do. It's insanity. If we are going to go against the ordinance of God, we will greatly reap what we sow. Don't let it happen, America. Don't let it happen, church. There are groups like Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and I'm not afraid to mention it anymore because it's truth. They're destroying this country. What my grandfather and my great-grandfather, what they, what they stood for and the things that this country is all about, they're destroying this country. Are you going to stand for it? I'm not saying stand up with guns. No, I'm not saying that. But you better get out and vote. Don't put up with this nonsense. These groups want lawlessness to force their socialist, communist agendas on this country. They hate us, and they have no reason to be here any longer. Support your mayors and your governors and getting them out. Pray for them. They need, they need Jesus just as much as we do, okay? But if they're doing evil, they need to be run out of town. Based on Romans 13, read it for yourself. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. I'm wrong about a lot of things, but that I'm right about, because the Bible says it. It says in 2 Thessalonians that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Have you, have you seen that? Have you seen those pictures of the, the flaming buildings and the guy from CNN getting up there and saying, it's, it's, it's a peaceful organization. Are you kidding me? There's pieces of debris floating up from the air and the smoke and the tires and the cars and, you know, the Macy's and all these other places are torched and it's, it's peaceful. It really it is. Really? Have you lost your mind? Yes, they have lost their minds. The law is good. My whole family's in law enforcement. You heard me talk about it much. I love them. I love what they do. I pray for my brother and the guys that he serves and those that serve under him. I think we should refund the police. Not defund them, refund them. Stack them up, get them everything they need. Make sure they have the very best, more so than the criminals. Make sure that their salaries are so good that they can support their families. That, I won't have a problem my taxes being raised. Raise my taxes if that's what it's going to go for because we need that. What does it say in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8? But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. That's why we have rules on the books. That's why they're there. Do we just throw them out? Oh, it, you know, who cares? Just let them do it. Really? How is it that somebody can stand with a and throw a brick into the middle of a store and not be held accountable? How is it that a mob like that can get away with not socially distancing, but we get together like this and all of a sudden the hammer comes down? A little injustice there, don't you think? But what do we do? Do we get mad? 
Do we get angry? Do we start raising and pulling out our guns and shooting things? No, we don't. We get into our prayer closet, and we show our vote in the voting. That's what we do, but we pray first. Do you believe that God can change things by prayer? Do you? I'm asking myself the same question. I'm not just leveling anybody. But notice that the law is for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. That's why we have law. So do we defund the police? No, refund the police. Get them back at their jobs. Make the. <laughs> Does anybody agree with me on this? Or am I just, have I lost my mind? Folks, this, we live in a critical time in history. Our country's on the verge. What are you going to do about it? Again, we know where our kingdom lies. We know that we're going to go up. And some of you aren't going to like this. But you know what? We are on the verge. We're on the verge of it of our country changing completely. And why should we care? We're going to go to heaven. God gave to Adam that commandment. You read it. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. That requires stewardship. That's what stewardship is. Take care of it, Adam. That means that we are not to be silent. We don't have to, we're not violent people. We don't have to be silent. Are you going to remain silent? And be more vocal about the gospel than anything else. That's the most important thing of all. But we also have to look at what's happening. The nations, verse 18, were angry, and your wrath has come. Notice uh, in Psalm 2, you know, we, we, we read in Psalm 2, you know, why do the heathens rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves together. They take counsel together against the Lord, against Jehovah, and against his anointed. Guess what? Who is Jesus Christ? Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords from us. It almost sounds like I've used this analogy before, but it's sort of like an infant with an umbilical cord attached to its mother. It gets everything it needs from the mother. Can you imagine how preposterous it would be for an infant to come out of the womb and say, I'm done with this. I don't need this. Or even in the womb. It's in there in the womb and it's like, what's this thing? I don't need this. It's the thing that gives him everything. Gives him the oxygen that he needs. Because he's surrounded in amniotic fluid, right? He's breathing water. (laughs) All the nutrients, everything is given from that umbilical cord. And yet the world wants to take that scissor and cut the cord. Like in Psalm 2. Just cut this cord cut this cord. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We want to be free to do what we want. We want to run down the street naked on fentanyl. Is that really what people want? And the time of the dead that they should be judged. And and again, as the seventh trumpet is sounded, within it is the germ, if you will, of everything, all the judgments that are coming yet in this time period that we're talking about. The time of the dead that they should be judged. We know that there's a great white throne judgment spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, where the dead in Christ, or I'm sorry, not the dead in Christ, but the dead, the wicked dead, are finally judged. And God, and you know, judgment is God's strange work. It's not something that he delights in. The God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. And you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. There is going to be a reward for, for, for believers. We read about that in what we call the judgment seat of Christ, or the bema seat. The word judgment is bema in the Greek, and that's where we get the term bema seat, where we're rewarded for what we have done in our bodies since we've been Christians. That's what this judgment is for. It's not a judgment of salvation or not. 
And so we see those things. I would encourage you to read those. And also, at the end of verse 18, it says, and, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. God will ultimately destroy those who destroy the earth. We see that in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. He is going to judge. He's going to bring an end to those who destroy the earth. You can read it for yourself. And then notice verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. Remember in when Moses was building the tabernacle, he received instruction from the Lord about that tabernacle and it was given to him according to the pattern of the temple that is in glory. And Moses built the temple on earth, or the tabernacle, and it was a mirror, if you will, of what the heavenlies were. And so the ark is seen in heaven. In fact, in Hebrews 9, verse 23, it says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy of holy, the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, which are the ones in heaven, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so those things were a pattern. And here we see God opening his temple in heaven, and we see the, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, just as a, and I'll, I'll end here, I just think it's very interesting, just as a side note, as we look at this, this verse about the Ark of the Covenant being seen in heaven. Right now, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. You know what I'm talking about. It's the box that was overlaid with gold with the poles and the two golden cherubim looking down upon the mercy seat where the high priest would offer blood once a year on the Day of Atonement. And inside that box was three things, at least at one point there were. There were Aaron's rod that budded and a jar of manna and also the Ten Commandments, those two tables of stone written with the finger of God. Can you imagine finding that ark somewhere? I was digging in my yard last, late last night, or late last afternoon, yesterday afternoon. <clears throat> I was digging and clearing out some stuff. and I mean, I'm, I'm joking here, okay? Bear with me. And I'm digging, and I'm thinking, Lord, it'd be so cool to find the Ark of the Covenant. Wouldn't that be a surprise? You know, as I'm digging there, and I chink, chink, I got my shovel, and chink, what's that? And I clear away the dust, I blow it away, and I see, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I see these, these wings, and I start digging a little, and I dig around this outside, and I, the, the staves are there, and I'm like, oh, how did this get to Penfield? But we don't know where it is. It's not in my backyard be really cool though if it was but I won't be worrying about that but we notice that the ark of the covenant wasn't seen the last time we seen it was in Solomon's temple it's the last time you can you can look for it it's either the ark of the covenant the ark of God or the ark of the of the covenant or um, there, there's different phrases for that but the last time it was seen was in Solomon's temple and so we don't know what happened Solomon's temple was the one that was there when uh, after Solomon, there were a number of Judah, Judah kings, you know, in his uh, coming after him. But at some point, you know, during Zechariah's, when he was a king there, the Babylonians came and they destroyed it in 586 B.C. They destroyed everything. Maybe the Babylonians took it. Maybe the Babylonians took the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe they destroyed it. I don't think they did. Or maybe <clears throat> the Jews knowing that Nebuchadnezzar was coming, they go underneath the Temple Mount, which there's all kinds of caverns and pathways and all kinds of strange things down underneath the Temple Mount. Did they hide it? There's good reason to believe maybe they did. In fact, there's one place, that if you go to the rabbi's tunnel, and Kathy and Bonnie, remember we were there? That There's a place along the, um, the, the, the rabbi's tunnel there where there's a place that's sealed off, and there are some that believe that it was there, that the priests hid, hid that away before the Babylonians came and sealed that, that, that area. Could be. What about the Romans when they came in 70 A.D. and they destroyed the temple in 70 A.D.? Have you, anybody seen the Arch of Titus? I know I'm keeping you, but just bear with me. I'm having a really good time. Are you having a good time? Bear with me here because this is really exciting. I hope, I hope it's exciting for you. But in 70 A.D., the Roman legions come. They destroy Jerusalem. 
And if you notice the Arch of Titus, search for it on the internet and you'll see. What do you see the Romans carrying in to Rome with Titus Vespasian and all of his army coming in on the shoulders of some of the Romans' soldiers? What do you see there? I, I, I almost I didn't have time to put it up there. It's the menorah, the lampstand in Solomon's temple. You see it coming into Rome. I believe that menorah, what does that have to do with the Ark and the Covenant? Absolutely nothing. This is just really cool to talk about. <laughs> Actually, it does have something to do with it because it's a, it's a temple. It's an article in the temple. The lampstand and the Ark of the Covenant are probably two of the most valued pieces of furniture in that ark or in that temple. <clears throat> but we see in the Arch of Titus, we see them bringing in the, the lampstand. We can see it. It's probably in the Vatican, in the basement somewhere. I'm not kidding either. I, I, I firmly believe that there's probably the menorah itself is probably covered with something in a box, squirreled away somewhere in the basement of the Vatican that nobody will see. Only a few people even know about. Or did God just take it up? Or, or when, when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant now, it's a separate article, okay? Maybe the Ark of the Covenant, maybe the Lord took it. Maybe it's up in the glory with him. We really don't know. But me, like Indiana Jones, it doesn't keep me from digging in my backyard with my whip on the side, my hat. Anyway, but this Ark of the Covenant in heaven, everything on the earth was a pattern of what was in heaven. And so um, who knows what that Ark of the Covenant is? We can only conjecture. But this is a significant, the significant Significance of this seventh trumpet as it unleashes the final wrath of God upon the earth. And aren't you glad that you've been spared? Right now, if you're a believer, you have been spared from that. If the rapture was to occur today, I would not want to go through what we're reading about, what we've been reading about since chapter 6. We're going to be in glory with Jesus. That's where I want to be. Is that where you want to be? Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how it challenges us, Lord. And we thank you, God, that, Lord, just as you said, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. We have every bit of confidence, Lord, that your sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for our sin, for our redemption. Lord, nothing else is sufficient enough. It's, it doesn't get any more sufficient than that. Lord, we don't need to go through even a partial tribulation period to be cleansed. You have cleansed us once and for all by the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.